Hello and welcome to a new series from your At The Flicks team. Now last year, Lucy and I hosted three shows about Stephen King's work and the shows met with some great response from you, the listeners. So we thought it'd be a great idea to delve back into the world of King in a little more detail. Over a few drinks, we threw ideas around such as which of these films would scare Neil the most? <laughs> and then we hit upon an idea of, now nah, let's do it as a film-by-film film breakdown. Let's be kind to Neil. We're certainly not going to go through every film and TV out in from The Great Man. That would take years. And let's be honest, three of us are pensioners. <laughs> so, if you are expecting a discussion on what the farming community thought of Children of the Corn 5, Fields of Terror, I'm going to disappoint you now and say we're not covering that. And the other thing I'm going to say up front is that we're not going to keep it to the same panel for each film. We're going to mix it up a bit and bring in some new voices to some of the shows. So if you're a King fan and have a favourite film, please contact us at, at The Flicks and we will invite you on to that particular show. For the first show, the panel is made up of the founder members of this idea. There is Lucy, who, unlike the others, actually watches horror films. Graham, who will watch them under duress, and Neil, who will watch them when tied to that clockwork orange contraption that keeps your eyes open. <laughs> Everybody, how are you doing? Yeah, Fine. Good Why do I watch horror films wearing a dress? I don't understand that. Okay. <laughs> well, so, Graham, in this day and age... <laughs> You're not judging. We never judge. <laughs> oh, duress. Okay, I get it now. Like all journeys, we're going to start at the very beginning. And as we've already said, today we're going to be talking about Carrie. Directed by Brian De Palma, released in America in 1976 and the UK in early 1977. It was also King's first published book, having been released in 1974. For anyone out there who may not be aware of this story, I think we'd best sum up the plot first. In a nutshell, Carrie is Carrie White, one of those people in school that we've all had, that nobody ever talks to, fades into the background, a little bit odd. Carrie is that such person. She lives with a very religious mother, never allowed to mingle with other children. And then all of this comes to a head one day when she's in the shower in school and has her first period. All the other girls make fun of her. The gym teacher comes in, sort of saves her, gets her out of that, sends her home, where the mother finds out what's happened to Carrie and punishes her, saying that, you know, you're becoming a woman, so I'm going to hit you for it. Locks her up in a cupboard. Meanwhile... One of the other girls, uh, Sue Snell, has felt really guilty about what's happened, and she organises for her boyfriend to take Carrie to the school prom. But there are others in that group who feel that the punishment they received from the gym teacher was unfair, and they decide to take a little revenge on Carrie. However, what's been developing all throughout this is Carrie has the gift of telekinesis, and that gift is growing. When things are set up against her, she exacts a horrible and terrible revenge. Let's go around. And Lucy, I'll start with you. Did you read the book or see the film first? I saw the film first because it's one of those, you know, films that everyone's expected to see. And obviously, as I got into horror, I was encouraged to watch it, obviously. And then I read the book straight after because I thought it was brilliant. And I was aware that it was Stephen King's first published book, so it was necessary reading. I was impressed by how close to the source material the film actually is. And we can go into that later. It's a very faithful adaptation. The thing I liked about it was you had the story of Carrie running through it, but mm -hmm. if such an incident occurred, 
mm-hmm. there'd be loads of expose books written on it exactly. and <laughs> it intersperses into the story these books that look at the incidents and analyze them from this mm-hmm. cheap exploitational daily mail sort of way it's very clever like, yeah graham you read it yeah i read it many many years ago and i thought oh he can't captured almost everything in the the main points in the book in the film so mm-hmm. it was quite a faithful adaptation yeah neil have you read it although i no, guess no. What, what no. i should do i know i should do it is worth it the audio book by the way is read by sissy spacek and it's really good all oh, right it's one of the few books that i read in one sitting very short for stephen king which is what yes. I was surprised by. I mean, that and Misery, I think I read over an entire weekend. He's got this real gift for like sucking you in and just making you keep, want to keep reading. And I, I actually revisited it a few uh, days ago in, in preparation for this podcast. And again, I read it in two days because it's just so, it's, it's like 200 and something pages. It's so short, which makes it quite accessible. I'm curious as to what you think of the characters in the book. I think on the whole, they're quite faithful. I know Miss Collins is a little bit different because she has a different name in the novel. I think she's Miss Desjardins, I think That's her name it. Yeah, yeah. Um, and she also doesn't die in the book. So obviously we'll, we'll talk about her death later on in the podcast, but I found it interesting they decided to kill her off in the film. So that's probably the only big difference. But I think aside from that, it's a very faithful adaptation of the characters, which is why I'm, I really love this film. I think it's a really, really faithful version of the novel. And your thoughts on the film? No, oh, the film's absolutely brilliant. It's it's up there in my top ten. Um, I, oh, think wow. it's, I think it's still relevant today. And again, I'll, I'll get onto that a little bit later. But I think in terms of, of the themes and beyond, you know, if you take away the telekinesis, it's a very relevant film. And I think it still has a lot of important messages behind it. Chatting to Graham just before we started this. And, and Graham, your, your view on it is it's very 70s in the way it takes its time. Yeah, it, it expands out, whereas you'd like to see more action. Is that fair to say or not? Well, no, no. I, I actually liked it because you really get a sense of who they are. And the thing that got me was you get everybody's motivations very clear and they reinforce those motivations with their actions as they go through the film. Bits of it drag, you know, the bit where they're sat at the table at the dance and chatting and things. You think, OK, come on, move on. We, I've got it now. I know who all the... The, the people are, let's get into the action. But it's very 70s, you know. Um, you know, the hairstyles are h- horrendous. Um, Excuse me, in lockdown, my hair's going back to that. <laughs> <laughs> Your hair's going back to the 70s. Wow. Okay. Absolutely. <laughs> Just with the rest of you. <laughs> <laughs> I did like the cinema photography. I did like the fact that it wasn't over saturated you know you could see everybody had freckles and, mm-hmm. and blemishes and it, it it was very very 70s and yeah it was great neil I, th- I just hated the bullying i found that worse than all the rest of it it's um the bullying that she gets is terrible and then of course it builds and builds and builds but uh yeah and it's only the last bit that's really i guess horror that's fair. I, I'll challenge the horror a bit later on, but for different reasons. No, it's not reasons. really horror, yes. I know what you mean. Yeah. I know what you mean. Yeah. But, yeah. But, okay. The film had an X certificate when it first opened. It's got an 18 certificate now, and it's the only version of Carrie which carries such a high certificate. Usually it's 15. This is all down to that first five minutes. Mm-hmm. I mean, the film opens like a porn movie. Yeah. Down, 
Donaggio's music is slow. It's very much like Emmanuel, which is one of the big hits of that time. And then you have that really shocking shower reveal that sort of plays against this softcore porn of all the actresses uh, other than Amy Irvin, who had it in her contract that she wouldn't, running naked throughout the um, changing room. How disconcerting and powerful is that sequence to you? Graham? Yeah, at my age, it was just a little embarrassing. I thought, oh, I'm not watching this bit. What, did you go? I'm did fine. your parents take you? <laughs> oh, no. When, when I'm, when, no, I just mean when I'm re-watching it. Thanks, Jeff. Okay. Uh, no, when I watched it the first time, come on, I was 18, for God's sake. All these young ladies half naked on the screen, and I'd grown up in Belfast, where this had slipped in under the radar and people mm-hmm. weren't allowed to see anything like this in, in Northern Ireland. Everything was censored. So it was just, yeah, I thought, wow, this is a good start. But when I rewatched it, I thought, oh, I think this is a wee bit exploitative. Do you think so? I don't, I don't know. know. I, I, know I know De Palmer said that he, he sh- the girls didn't want to do that scene at the start, so he showed them. Oh, you're space talking expert. about them running naked through the yes. thing. Yeah, yeah, right, okay. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So it's a bit, bit exploitative. But what about the impact then of, you know, the, the way that goes from them running around to Carrie White having a period? Oh, really powerful. Uh, yeah. I mean, mm. I was not expecting that. They sort of lull you with that piece. And you're thinking, oh, this is really good. And then whop. And you think, oh, holy God, no. Yeah. <laughs> they, they're not going to actually show us this. Are they? Oh, yes, they are. Oh, my goodness. Mm-hmm. And then all the girls start to bully her and it gets worse and worse. But brilliantly, you get a real sympathy for Carrie in that moment. You're on her side. Normally, where she'd be an outsider and she'd be the sort of kid you'd avoid at school, suddenly you're on her side. So it's very, very cleverly done. Lucy? Yeah, you know, it's funny because as the, as the only woman on this podcast, I actually don't find his take on it. No, 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 you haven't counted Neil. Um, um, okay, fair enough. Um, but you know, oh, she's, she's buying into it. On a serious note, though, I think that he did try to play on the male gaze as a sort of you know that the horror film has been based on the male gaze for years, and you know, you know, Halloween did it in the sense that you know the entire opening sequence of Halloween is you know he's he's stalking her and he's looking at her body and then he stabs her to death. You know, it's very much looking at women, and you very much do this, and then it suddenly switches to this natural yet very humiliating scene with Carrie and it's funny because she's surrounded by women but it's not a supportive environment at all like all of those women know what a period is but they feel the need to bully her because of how they've been conditioned to look at periods and it's a really interesting look at you know oh oh god like you're bleeding oh gross it's it's just really indicative of bullying at the time as a girl who who, you know grew up and you know was bullied in the changing room I, I completely understand why they'd want to approach it in this way. It kind of goes from an idealised version of, oh, girls in a changing room, oh, everyone's running about and having a good time, and then you look at the, the outsider and how she's feeling. It's it's very powerful. I think it was important for him to do this, I really do, because you know it's almost challenging how we look at horror films because Carrie's humiliating period is not sexy at all. It's probably the no, most humiliating no. a girl could go through. It really is. And that's why... That is such a powerful scene because he shot the opening as softcore porn. Mm-hmm. And then at the very end of that scene, you see Carrie sort of washing herself with soap in the shower. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, her hand comes up and there's blood all over it and everything changes. 
Yeah, definitely. You know, I think obviously we were going to move on to, you know, about the misogyny in the film, and I've got a lot mm. to say about period, sadly, I'm sorry. No, um, no, no, no. But I do feel that it's kind of relevant to mention that girls were encouraged to feel ashamed about it. Everyone knew they had one, but it was like, oh, God, don't talk about it. Oh, and you know, clean yourself up. And, you know, they, they spend the whole film shouting, plug it up at her and laughing and throwing tampons at her. And it's like, you would expect boys to do that, but you wouldn't expect girls to do it. And I think, you know, in this day and age, I'd like to think that wouldn't happen. But maybe some girls are that mean still. It's always struck me as such a, wow, this is such a locker room environment, like from a girl's perspective. It's horrible. Yeah, I'm just... Uh processing that because you're saying about sort of would they do it now i think they would i think the use of social media now would kick right in on this but there's a lot of movements the feminist movement has grown and there's a lot of more you know there's a thing called period positivity and you know people are being a lot more open about the fact that they exist so perhaps now periods are less of an embarrassing thing i don't know though but i certainly think in the 70s they were more conditioned to look at it as a kind of disgusting thing Neil, before I move on, I want to pick up on a couple of points there. But Neil, you haven't said anything. Anything you want to add? Yeah, I mean, it was the seventies. It was um, men weren't supposed to, you know, to, to, they weren't expected to know anything about uh, periods or anything like that. So it was generally ignored. There is a misogyny about De Palma. You know, I, I've said that De Palma filmed it as a slow motion, almost like a porn film, and then does this horrific reveal. But is there a misogyny about this scene that makes that sequence worse? Or Because the Palmer has been accused of this, dressed to kill. I mean, when it was shown in London, people were throwing red paint on the screen in protest of that movie. Would you say that any part of Carrie is misogynistic? It's interesting to me because Carrie as a novel does have some misogynistic undertones to it. And I feel that it's it's necessary to sort of to portray those. I mean, Carrie's mother is a massive misogynist. She spends the entire film basically punishing Carrie for being a woman. You're a woman now. Why didn't you tell me, Mama? <laughs> and God made Eve from the rib of Adam. And Eve was weak and loosed the raven on the world. And the raven was called sin. Said. The raven Why was called sin. Why didn't you tell sin. me, Mama? Said. No. The raven was called sin. Ooh, woman. And the raven was called sin. And first sin was intercourse. First sin was intercourse. I didn't sin, mama. No. Say it. I didn't sin, mama. The first sin was intercourse. First sin was intercourse. First sin was intercourse. The first sin was intercourse, mama. I was so scared. I thought I was dying. And the girls, they all laughed at me and threw things at me, And Eve was weak. Say it. No, mama. Eve was weak. No. Eve was weak. No. Eve was weak. Say it, No, mama. Say it. Eve was weak. Eve was weak. And, you know, she gets a period and she's punished for it. And, she's, you know, she calls her breasts dirty pillows. It's, it's very much a being a woman is dirty and you should feel ashamed. And it's very much a sense of shame. And I really feel that it's important to communicate that because Carrie has spent her whole life feeling that she's disgusting and wrong and weird. And maybe De Palma has been misogynistic in other films, but I think in Carrie it was a necessary thing to do because a lot of the, the subject material is based around that. I don't know if you guys would agree. I do. I, I absolutely spot on. I, and I love that thing you're saying there about a mum being misogynistic because we're seeing it in even today in modern day America with you know women for Trump who are incredibly misogynistic against yeah, uh, two other women. 
So I got a slightly different perspective. I always saw that misogyny more driven by her religious fundamentalism. Mm-hmm. She was so Old Testament, really. Yeah. Anything about sex or anything about sexuality in any form, she immediately saw it through a lens of fundamentalist Christian beliefs. And, and so that got all screwed up and everything got screwed up in her mind. There was nothing that Carrie could do being a woman that would would redeem her from anything because she had such a negative view of women through her twisted study and incorrect study mm-hmm. of the Bible. But, and, but, and in fact, it's interesting that she never once hits Carrie with the Bible. It's always with these strange pamphlets and booklets that she's created out of her own pages. Yeah. So exactly. she's she's got a different interpretation of the Bible to anybody who read the Bible. Mm-hmm. But I think you, you've got a different Margaret White in the book compared to the film. The Margaret White in the book is somebody that was always anti-sex, and the inference is she was raped yeah. by her then husband. Whereas in the film, underneath it all, she has a standard normal sex drive that the religious element of her has tried to suppress but can't suppress. On yeah, occasions, yes. I think so, in, the, in the film she says she was raped, but she liked it, quote unquote. I yes, think she yeah, tries exactly. to infer that she, you know, Carrie was a product of marital rape, but she kind of enjoyed it deep down. I think that's what she tries to imply. Yeah, and again, it comes back to this misogyny. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Uh, what I find interesting is we're speaking about all the female characters. Yeah. Yeah. You know, obviously, the the film opens with that period sequence. But we've broadened the scope of the discussion already, and we're talking female. And we haven't spoken about the male characters. And we're going to go into each character in depth anyway. But I want to say one thing that really surprised me when watching it again is that these female characters are strong. But in making the female characters strong and making them drive the plot, you've almost feminized the male characters. They don't do anything on their own. They do what the women around them tell them to do, whether it's the headmaster, whether it's Mm -hmm. Billy Nolan, or whether it's Tommy Ross. Am I right by saying they feminise them or not? I guess so, yes. I mean, it's they are really quite wet, aren't they? They'll join in when they're told to join in, really, aren't they? They wait for the girls to to be nasty to her first, and then they join in. So, yeah, I think you, you may be right there. I agree. I think Stephen King really wanted the, the women to have, you know, he said he wanted feminist themes in the novel and he said he wanted to sort of show the girl's power. So in doing that, he's sort of played on the tropes that, that female characters are the most subservient and instead he's made the men subservient. You know, all the men in, in, in the film, like Neil said, just do what their girlfriends tell them to do. And it's very interesting. And they all had long hair other than Ned Master. Well, that was a style at the time, though. <laughs> it was, it was. And as I said, in lockdown, we're going back to it. Uh, I'm not. Yeah, yeah, I've, I've yeah. shaved mine off. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Again, I had a slightly different view of things. I thought the boyfriend, Tommy Ross, the good kid, yeah, I thought it, they overplayed it with him. You know, he wrote lovely poetry and he had all these long, curly hair. He did, write it, did he? he copied it. He said he'd written that piece of poetry, but it wasn't him. I thought John Travolta's character was just an abuser, a very weak character as well. So yes, he was used, but I wouldn't say he feminized him because he was quite a horrible person. You know, he was constantly slapping her in the face and telling her to shut up. 
yes, the women do drive it. And I think some of the male characters, particularly the headmaster, very subservient in those particular scenes. And so it turned it around a bit. He's meant to be the, the principal. He's meant to be the man in, in charge. And yet he's uh, he can't handle the PE teacher. He just wants to get her out of the out of the room and get this problem tucked under the under the carpet as quickly as possible. Yeah, I mean, the one thing with the headmaster is you get the impression before this film starts, Carrie White was either bullied and picked on or ignored, and most teachers didn't know her. So that, it's uh, certainly ignored in the headmaster's case because he keeps calling her Cassie. Exactly, exactly right. At no point does he pick up on her real name. But I would say in the defence, certainly of Tommy Ross, good taste in westerns, Duel at Diablo, fantastic film. <laughs> uh, <laughs> So that's good. And again, yeah, we are, so for the moment, because we are going to come on to it, putting the horror aspect of this to one side, we talk of the characters, the setup, and the school life. And it's almost like a John Hughes film for, I would say, two thirds of its length, coming something slightly darker later on. You know, we use something like Pretty in Pink or even Sixteen Candles, which come to my mind as fair examples. Lucy, I know you've watched Sixteen Candles recently. Yeah, and so. I, I do watch Pretty in Pink as well, and I, I've kind of come to the conclusion that it's more like Pretty in Pink, to be honest. Um, you know, obviously, Andy is is unpopular. You know, she's she's an outcast. You know, she goes, she she's got a crush on the uh, on Blaine, the popular guy. You know, it's very it's very similar to, to the setup of Carrie, to be honest. And you know, obviously, that has a much happier ending, <laughs> as you said. Yeah. She, she even makes her own prom dress, you know, and it's pink, and it's just very sort of similar to the way Carrie sets herself up before the third act. You know, it's almost as if I think you mentioned to me, um, Jeff, that you said that you almost think that Carrie's going to get that nice ending by the end of it. Um, I'd, I'd love to see that, and that, and that yeah, we'll pick up on that in a minute. So I'm going to pick up on something Graham said earlier on that as well. So it's just funny how Pretty in Pink almost follows that formula, but in a way that you would expect it to. 16 Candles to a certain extent, yeah, because Samantha, you know, she, <laughs> her sister's getting married and, like, you know, her family forget her 16th birthday. Like, it's an awful thing to do to, to, a, to a teenager. And she goes through all of these dilemmas and, you know, um, and then she's got the, the school dance. And there's certainly similarities, yes, with much, much happier endings. The other aspect of that, and I'll, I'll pass it to the guys in a minute, that it, it's this bizarre locale that Carrie's set in. Mm-hmm. You've got everything's built around the prom. Yes. But at night, they go out on you know the strip in the cars. Well, yep. it's more 50s than 70s even before you even got that. So it's, it seems uh-huh. almost timeless the way the film is set. Yeah, I see what you mean. I have actually seen Pretty in Pink and it's, um yeah, it is very similar, isn't it? The girl that doesn't quite fit. Yeah, and then you did the, 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 obviously the endings is slightly, slightly different. But uh, yeah. I, I can see Graham's advertising now when he put when he puts the um, tweets out for this one. Is Pretty in Pink an unofficial remake of Carrie? Um, oh, that is, that is so scary because I've just written that down. Oh bollocks! I'm that transparent. Oh great! Yeah, you agree then, Graham? Writing it down. Yeah, yeah. I, I just thought it was a good line. It is a bit like a John Hughes <laughs> film, except that the characters are much more deeper and more well-fleshed out. Whoa, stand back there. Breakfast yeah, Club. Yeah. Oh, yeah, but yeah, that... But again, 
it's King, isn't it? It's King's writing. And this is his yeah. first book, Out of the Traps, first book. And already it's got incredible characters and incredible interactions and, and things that happen and drive the narrative forward. And it just shows you what a great writer he was. Great writer. And I know we've said this in the past, we've done a show on this, but a great writer of female characters. Female characters of all types, you know, not just horrible people like in Misery, but really, really tough women, just like Shelley Duvall in The Shining, you know, really tough, resilient women. Yeah. And I just think, yeah, King's female characters and all of the characters in this book uh, and film are, are multi-layered. That brings us neatly in to start talking about the characters. Now, Sissy Spacek, in real life, was a homecoming queen when in school in Texas. And, <laughs> yeah, and then she goes from that to playing the character of Carrie. And she struggled to get that part. I mean, Jack Fisk, her husband, who was the production designer on the film, and he'd worked with De Palma, I think, on Phantom of the Paradise. De Palma wanted Sissy Spacek for another role, and we'll talk about that in a moment. But, you know, she put Vaseline on her hair, went in uh, for this role, because they had somebody else lined up to play Carrie, but she just stormed it and, you know, got the part. And, of course, she was Oscar-nominated for it. What are your thoughts on Sissy Spacek as Carrie, then? I'll start with you, Graham. Oh, um, and when I saw it originally, again, 18-year-old guy, I was stunned by her. And, and stunned by... When she first comes on, you think, oh, what a drip. And then you, you have the, the, the scene in the shower and you think, oh, right, okay, this girl has a bit of depth. And then you begin. And then when she transformed, it was like Cinderella. You know, she just came out and you thought, oh, my God, she's gorgeous. And I remember thinking at the time, that's a clever trick. How did he do that? <laughs> because I'd, I'd got one mental image firmly installed in my brain of this girl being a bit of a frump. And then she gets the, the pink dress on and it was like a Cinderella moment. Suddenly she's absolutely stunning, which then again went on to make the third act quite more shocking when she gets covered in the blood and you think, oh my God, she's a psycho. <laughs> and that look and that stare and everything. So your thoughts on Sissy Spacek then, uh, Lucy? Yeah, I think she's wonderful. I think it's an interesting one because... Obviously, this is no disrespect to Sissy at all, but I think she's got a very unconventional look to her. And yes. I think that really helped, you know, like in classical Hollywood, women were supposed to look a certain way and they're supposed to have that yep. look. And Sissy did not have that look, but it was the perfect fit for Carrie. And I just think when she's up on that stage and it's just that stare and it's just the way that she's framed, it's perfect. It's exactly how I saw it in the book. I just think she's got that power. When you look at her, she goes from, like Graham said, to being a bit, you know, mousy and, you know, just kind of shrinking away to suddenly this grand sort of revenge and the, the way she looks, it's, she's monstrous in a perfect way. And I just think in the novel, she's described as, you know, she has pimples everywhere and she's ugly, quote unquote. And, you know, I think it's important that she didn't look like the other girls and she absolutely did not. And I just feel that Sissy really embodied that. She was wonderful. Yeah, um, I, I think like Graham said, it's, it's a Cinderella effect, isn't it? You know, quite literally, she has an evil mother who won't let her do things, and she suddenly got this opportunity to go to like the equivalent of a ball, and you know, it, it's very Cinderella-like. Yeah, yeah, it is a bit of a dark, dark fairy tale. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, and it just, again, builds and builds to, to that moment towards the end. Neil, your thoughts on Sissy Spacek? Oh, fantastic, yeah. I mean, she makes it, doesn't she? As you say, unconventional beauty, which you can transform from one to another, it, uh, from from that sort of um, spotty, horrible, uh, not horrible, that's wrong. How society yeah. saw it, though, you've got a point. But it, yes, I mean, it, it's how she's seen and then uh, a product of her mother, really, and uh, then transforming and then suddenly go the other way <laughs> and then suddenly a psycho. Yeah I, 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 yeah, I can see that, definitely. Every time I watch it, and I've seen it many times, there's always that hope that Carrie will have that one night. You know, there, there's the, the bit that Graham was talking about earlier when they're sitting at the table. Uh, which I really liked, and that very much was a John Hughes moment. But that moment with the when they're dancing and the camera just swirls around them, around them, which is reflecting, I think, the state of mind that Carrie White is in at that point. You know, can things get even better than this? Mm. And, you know, it's just a shame that somebody's going to pour pig's blood on her in a moment and they're all going to die. I'd like to see the John Hughes ending of this film. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can, pretty in pink. There is so much foreshadowing, and you know that something horrible is going to happen to her. That's the problem. So it's even when they're dancing together, it's you as a, as the viewer are worried hmm. the whole time. Lucy, you were saying there was something I wanted to bring up, and it's a very it's a very different story to carry. But I wanted to bring up George Orwell's nineteen eighty four because the first time what? I read that, I naively convinced myself that Winston would overthrow the system and he would you know defeat big brother and then you have that horrible line the book ends by saying he loved big brother and then your world just crashes and you think oh my god and i had a similar effect with carrie because like you said jeff you kind of it builds you up to to this lovely moment and oh yeah she's going to have a great prom night and you know her mother can go to hell and you know she can go and have this wonderful night with tommy and it just crashes down and i feel that you know, I love endings or, or, or scenes that do that because it's so powerful. And every time I read 1984, I still convince myself, and it's ridiculous, isn't it? Because <laughs> we all know how that novel ends. But I still keep going, oh, come on, Winston, you can do it. And then, nope. And Carrie, it has a similar effect on me. <laughs> yeah. But the end, of, the end of 1984 is one of those where it just punches you in the face. Oh, I know. You, know, I- you just lose everything. You think, oh, no. No, 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 no. You put the book down and it just stays with you for weeks afterwards. Honestly. Mm-hmm. Well, okay then. Uh, <laughs> you know, obviously my closet romanticism, I'm told I can either watch Pretty in Pink or 1984 now. <laughs> depending <laughs> on what mood I'm in. <laughs> you convince yourself that things are going to be okay and then you're like, oh, well, they're not okay. <laughs> no. <laughs> this is an odd fact and, and ties in with that. Brian De Palma wanted her for the part of Chris Hargensen, which again shows the mercurial quality of SpaceX itself. To, to play Chris, it's a very attractive role. So SpaceX, you know, he saw her as either way on this, you know, when she'd finished with the Vaseline in her hair. But he wanted Sandra Locke to play Carrie White. Now, Sandra Locke turned this down to go and star alongside Clint Eastwood in The Outlaw Josie Wales which may or may not have been a good career move, the way her life turned out. When they were cast in for this, there were two casting sessions going on side by side, Brian De Palma and George Lucas, and they were cast in for both Carrie and Star Wars. And Princess Leia. Yeah, yeah, so Carrie Fisher actually also did a test for Carrie White. 
Wow. And vice versa. Susie Spacek tested for Star Wars, didn't she? Correct. William Cat tested for the Han Solo part. You know, a version with Sandra Locke playing Carrie White or Carrie Fisher playing Carrie White would have been quite intriguing. Mm. I digress. Let's go back to characters. Do you know what? I cannot see anybody other than Sissy Spacek. Same, I can't see it at all. I just cannot see Carrie Fisher doing that. I don't think, no, that's just, that's just wrong, Jeff. Mm-hmm. Do you know, no, I, I think Sandra Locke would have given it a good go. Oh, uh, yeah. I think so. I think have, yeah. Perfect, Chris, and that's where she belonged. Yeah, that would have been intriguing as well. Yeah. Okay, well, let's move on to another character then. Margaret White, as played by Piper Laurie, also got an Oscar nomination. Mm-hmm. First role for over a decade. She'd sort of had enough of acting after doing... The Hustler, and went to raise family, and she's still alive. And she's a, a lot, become a lifelong friend and acting mentor and coach to William Cat. Mm-hmm. So she got on well with everybody on set, whereas Sissy Spacek, playing the method of the role, stayed away from everybody. What's your views on Margaret White and Piper Laurie's performance? Does it match your expectation of the role? And I'm going to talk as well after that about the about the ending and the way Margaret White dies. But we'll talk about it generally to start off with. That's Satan's power. It's nothing to do with Satan, Mama. It's me. Me. If I concentrate hard enough, I can move things. Satan is clever. Mama, I'm not the only one. Other people can do it. I read about it. Oh, you poor child, don't you know? He doesn't let you know he's working through you. I know. He ended your father and carried him off. He ran away, Mama. The devil tempted him. He ran away with a woman, Mama. Everybody knows that. You must renounce this power. You must give it up. You must never use it. I have a lot to say about Margaret White because funnily enough she's actually one of my favourite villains of all time because what I like about Margaret White is she's a very human threat like Stephen King is known for sort of supernatural stuff and you know things out of out of our control but Margaret White is very much in control of what she's doing and she's using her religious fundamentalism to make her daughter's life a living hell and that is terrifying to me I think Piper Laurie absolutely knocked it out of the park. She was brilliant. You know, she was terrifying. I would not want her as a mother. <laughs> it's very, it's very scary. It's a fact she even goes as far as to stab her own daughter in the shoulder in the climax of the film. She's scary. She really is. She's, she's so drawn in by this religious background that she's in that she just can't see past that and she can't see her daughter as anything other than a sinner. And that really upsets me. <laughs> But she's, she's, she's stunning as a character. I think she's wonderful. Oh, I, I thought she was brilliant. Mm-hmm. I really did. Because she never uses her own words. Everything is through exactly. the lens of her religion. Always quoting from the Bible. She's always making some fundamentalist remark. She puts you on edge. Every time she's on screen, you think, oh, that woman's not right. You know, there is something very seriously wrong with her. And the bit where she's kneeling down on the floor with Carrie and she's talking about when Carrie was conceived and you think, oh, that's just wrong. A fabulous performance by her. And to come back after all that time and to deliver that sort of performance after she'd been away from the screen for, what was it, 10 years or so? 
No, oh, 15 um, years for the state. 15 years of, wow, you know, knocked it out of the park, as Lucy said. Mm. Totally agree. Yeah, that's interesting, because I don't quite see it as you two are seeing it. I don't see her as a villain as such. I see this as a woman with very deep-rooted sexual problems. I think she enjoys sex, but buried it down. I mean, a lot of masochism about this woman, the way she tortures herself, as much as a bit of sadism, the way she tortures Carrie, but I think it's more masochism. And that's why the bit at the end, which we'll talk about now, where the knives fly into her, and she has this long, drawn-out death scene. point of that sequence is it's her orgasmic moment. It's her final release in set. She's crucified, quite literally. She, she is, and uh, it's interesting because they've got that model of her, in, you know, of St. Sebastian, which almost looks like Piper Laurie, and in the end, when Carrie kills her, she kills her to that. But but I think it's this almost sexual release for her, the way she's killed at the end of that film. I, I think it's an interesting one because obviously we were going to talk more about their relationship, but I just think... yeah. I do think Margaret must have been abused or has been a product of some sort of fundamental teaching but it also doesn't excuse how she treats her own daughter. And I just find her incredibly difficult as a character. But that's honestly a testament to King and a testament to Piper Laurie for making me feel so strongly about a character, you know? The fact that she feels so real. It's really scary. And one of the main themes of this film that come, comes out for me, it's a film about abuse. Yes. In, yes. in terms of you're either abused or you become an abuser. Now, there are five, and we're going to go through them, there are five main female parts in this role and i would say four out of five of them have been abused at some point and that and they become abusers to certain degrees throughout the course of this film one doesn't we'll touch on her later but definitely these two because you've got two characters the margaret white and, and carrie white very much abused they would have been called witches i think in earlier times as well Probably the way Carrie goes out, she'd be called a witch now. And th- I guess that comes back then. Do they abuse one another or is there a love there? And I actually think, personally, before I pass this out, I, I personally think there's a lot of-, lot of love there from Carrie to Margaret. Because when everything goes wrong with the prom, the first thing she does is go back to her mother and hopes to rekindle the relationship she previously had with her. So I think we've seen the negative side of Margaret White, but there's a very positive side to her as well. Yeah, this this is a difficult can of worms, isn't it? Um, I honestly feel like Carrie loves her mother and I think she's trying to just make her mother see her point of view and to see things from her eyes. But like Graham said, all that comes out of Margaret's mouth is just religious teachings and there's never a kind of normal conversation between the two. There's never a a connection. It's always religious teachings or, oh, they're going to laugh at you or, oh, you know, don't be stupid, I've told you that, you know, Margaret never makes an effort to connect with her daughter. And it's interesting that Carrie goes back after the massacre, but a lot of abuse victims will go back to their abuser because that's how they've been conditioned. Where else was Carrie going to go? On her own, she's murdered her entire school. Her mum's all she's got, and that's, that's tragic, but it's true. But also in the conversations they have all throughout the film, Carrie never holds back in saying what she's thinking. Now, in a lot of abusive relationships, you walk on eggshells. You, you don't say things. But at no point is Carrie afraid to say to her mother what she's thinking. Mm. That is true, but I don't feel that they've ever had a conversation that was anything exactly. beyond religious nonsense, <laughs> quite frankly. 
And that's really... I, I don't think she's a mother at all. She's not. There are no mother-daughter moments, are there, at Absolutely all. Absolutely not. Carrie's trying to be a daughter, trying yeah. hard, but the mother is just keeps pushing her away and putting all of these pre-canned almost statements in the way, oh, you know, the way she just constantly refers to her, I can see your dirty pillows and first comes the blood and then the intercourse and all of this stuff. And you think, no, this is a moment in this girl's life. You're meant to be the mother. You're meant to do all of the motherly things to assure her and, and build her back up. But she doesn't. She constantly beats her down. So she is definitely an abuser. Definitely. And the, the abuse is shocking and terrible. Mm. You know, and, and like Graham said, like even punishing her own daughter for having something as normal as a period, like a normal yeah. mother would at least say, oh, this is what's happening to you. You know, here, here's a sanitary product, you know, blah, blah, blah. But she makes no effort to even educate her on the subject in it. It's disgusting, it really is. And, and, and that's fair enough, but I would also say the reason that... I'm not defending that. No. Let me just say this up front. But the reason, to my mind, she does that is because she is really worried that Carrie has got to go down the same route that she's gone down. In other words, have this really bizarre relationship with sex that Margaret White does. And I think she's trying to protect her. And when she can't, she lashes out because she doesn't know how to control that. Now, I'm not defending that because mm-hmm. that is abuse. But I think in Margaret's mind, that's how she rationalizes it. So you think she's like projecting almost? I think she projects on her daughter, yeah, and everything yeah. about it. You know, first comes the blood, then come the boys. She's talking about herself. She's not talking about Carrie. That's very true. Yeah, it's still it's still horrible, and it's really hard for me to defend. <laughs> but I, no, I, 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 I know, and and again, I'd come back to the point. You know, we've spoken about this film as being partly John Hughes, and now we're talking about it as a very heavy drama, but we're not covering the horror and the the telekinesis aspect of this film yet. So it's already playing in a number of different ways. No wonder it's so good. Mm. And I'd put all of that down to King. King's writing, it's yeah, yeah, it's just it's all in there, and you can pull out whatever you want because you know his stuff is so clever. Still, cannot believe this is his first book. Just it's unbelievable. Yeah, it's also interesting. I don't think we mentioned, but his his wife famously fished this out of the of the bin because he put it in the bin. Yes. And, 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 you know, she was like, no, Stephen, I want you to write this. And she even helped with the female perspective, which I thought was really cool. (laughs) So it's brilliant. But after this book, really, it all went downhill, didn't it? Salem's Lot, The Shining, The Stand, The Dead Zone. (laughs) Rubbish. The rest of it's all terrible (laughs) after this. The Dark Tower, don't forget that. I don't think I've ever read a bad Stephen King book. Let's talk about something then that King didn't really create. And that's Miss Collins. Mm-hmm. So as you said, Lucy, it's Mr. Jean in the book. And the character in the film is very different. You know, there are hints that she's an outsider in her youth. There's that story that she says at prom to Carrie about the fact that her prom wasn't that brilliant, although it didn't end as badly as this one. And that was a, a monologue that Betty Buckley created. For me, her death, and it's the only time that character has died, in any of the incarnations of Carrie, it's the most disturbing of all, because in many ways, she is a reflection of Carrie. I get the impression that, like every other teacher, she ignored Carrie White. When she did see her, she saw, I think, part of herself in Carrie and tried everything she could to help her. 
first of all, I, I liked Betty Buckley. I thought she was great in that part. But I thought not only did she see Carrie White as part of her, but I think her character, Miss Collins, was trying to be the true educator, get these kids ready for life and ready for the future. She thought that Carrie White was her greatest success because she'd taken this shy, nerdy kid, as we'd probably call them now, uh, although Carrie would probably be a goth these days, but she turned her into this, you know, incredibly beautiful young woman and was going to send her off into the world confident and secure and all of these things, and boy, did that go wrong. So I like that character. In fact, I, when I was doing the research for this, Betty Buckley's got an incredible voice. She was in Cats on Broadway. You really she was are. in Carrie on Broadway as well. <laughs> yeah, you really she, Yeah, she played Margaret White. Yeah. Oh. It's just, wow. She's really quite a good actress. I'm really impressed with her. Yeah, I her death is awful, and I think I, I alluded to mm. it at the beginning of the show. I just wish she hadn't died. But almost, yeah. you know, Jeff, you have said that this film, you feel that it's a tragedy. So perhaps it was fitting that she did, because that's a fair point. That's very fair. Harry was so blinded by her rage. I don't think she cared who she killed at the point where she was pushed to her limit, and she she essentially massacred an entire school. And as we go on in the book, she massacres most of the town <laughs> you know she she yeah. really unleashes all of this power so i don't think she was really conscious of who she was killing but miss collins slash desjardin didn't deserve what she what she got but betty buckley was fantastic and i think she was the only ally that carrie, carrie really had which made it really upsetting for me so i'm with you on that to my mind it's another character that's been abused and is an abuser although to a lesser degree i think Again, you know, when she sees herself reflected in Carrie, it sounds like she didn't have a good childhood. So I think there was a bit of abuse. She was certainly an abuser in the way that she treated the other girls. Now, my idea for this little trick you pulled was three days suspension and refusal of your prom tickets. Oh, what? God. That'd get you where you live, wouldn't it? And you deserve it. I don't think any of you have any idea of just how nasty what you did really was. But the office has decided you're to have one week's detention. Still, there's one little catch. It's to be my detention. That's 50 minutes every day, starting today, on the athletic field. Get the picture? I'm not coming. That's up to you, Chris. That's up to all of you. Punishment for skipping detention is three days suspension and refusal of your prom tickets. Any other thoughts? Good. Now change up. Oh, yeah. Uh, and I know one of them. <laughs> yeah, slaps one across the face. Try that one today. Seventies. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. But yeah, and, and and in fact, in the book, her father is a lawyer, and he threatens the school, doesn't he? I think. I think so. I think you're right. Yes. Yeah. So it is taken a bit further there, but yeah, yeah, she did hit one of the, kid, the kids across the face. 
But then it was the kid who was directly responsible for the massacre that followed. So mm-hmm. <laughs> maybe you should have slapped her harder. Okay. <laughs> so let's finally wrap up the female characters, talk a little bit about Sue Snell, the one character I don't think was abused, and Chris Harginson, Nancy Allen, complete mirror opposites, strong female characters. Harginson is the most abused because her relationship with Billy Nolan is quite uncomfortable. It was uncomfortable in the 70s. It's even more so now the way he slaps around. Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts on those characters, Lucy? Yeah, I think Chris is, you know, I've, I've seen a lot of girls like Chris in my school years, unfortunately, you know, the ones that leader of the pack, they have a questionable boyfriend, they try to, to weed out the weak almost. She's a classic high school bully and I don't know if she could fully be redeemed, but I think she's very aware of what she's doing. She wants the power. She wants the power in the school. She wants to, you know, inflict that on Carrie because she's an easy target. So Chris hasn't really got much of a job to do because Carrie's vulnerable as it is. Sue, on the other hand, I think Sue genuinely does care about Carrie and starts to to drift away from the clique as can as can happen. You know, there's been cases in my, in my school life where former bullies have reached out to me and made amends, you know, and I feel that, you know, Sue's one of those. Sue didn't want to be a part of it anymore. So Sue was one of the few characters I actually like <laughs> in Carrie. Yeah. I think along with Miss Collins and Carrie herself, she's one of the only girls that I actually like. But yeah, I find them both very believable and both very re- reflective of, of the school cliques we're familiar with even today. Graham? Yeah, Chris's uh, character, uh, Nancy Allen, was the actress portrayed her really, really well. Sue Snell, I had a real problem watching this film again because I can remember at the time when I watched this uh, in the cinema, I was besotted with her. God, she was absolutely a vision of loveliness. And I, I don't think I actually heard a word she said when in the dialogue. I was just looking at her going, wow, you're gorgeous. <laughs> that's, now, what, that's what Steven Spielberg said when he met her on the set of this film. <laughs> oh, right, okay. Well, she was incredibly attractive woman. Going back now, looking at it with older eyes, and you think she's the sort of opposite of Carrie White's life. She has a really lovely relationship with her parents. She kisses them both on the cheek when she disappears out of the house. Uh, and by the go, way, that's her real life mum as well. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. And you thought, I thought that's really touching. And, and there's a family unit that's working well and it, it plays quite nicely against Carrie's dysfunctional family. I liked both the actresses. One I can now, I can look back and uh, and see uh, Amy Irvine as a good actress, um, whereas before I just saw her as a, as a stunning uh, Hollywood type. By the way, Nancy Allen plays the bully in this, played prostitute in both Blowout and Dress to Kill, and they're married to Brian De Palma. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Wow. I was going to say that she got married to Brian De Palma. What, what, yeah. what <laughs> I didn't know the other things. Yeah. Was he projecting through all of those? Oh, oh, no, that's a very This is how I'd like you. <laughs> very quickly, then, we'll have a look at the male characters, Tommy Ross and Billy Nolan, as played by uh, William Catt and John Travolta. Now, for me, Travolta didn't work this time around. I've got to be honest, looking at it again. It's just, oh. it doesn't seem, I have to say this without sounding crass, but he doesn't seem that abusive and psychopathic enough. He almost seems like a little puppy dog lost and just lashes out because he doesn't know what to do next. 
Whereas I thought Cat's performance was was really good. The the fun he's having with that role is great, and I just yeah, I just thought all round you know really good performance from an actor that unfortunately never found his grounding. I don't think. But Graham, what do you think of the two? I strangely I'd agree with that entirely. I thought John Travolta's performance was terrible, <laughs> absolutely terrible. He was a cartoon. When he lashed out at her, it was like, oh, now I have to hit her. Uh, now I'm going to hit her again. Oh, and, I, and it was just really, really off-putting. I can't even remember him being in the in the film f- back from, you know, when it first uh, released. I couldn't even remember his character. It was that forgettable. Mm-hmm. William Cat, Tommy Ross, I thought he was good, apart from the stupid haircut, but we all had them in the 70s. <laughs> Yeah, he played that quite quite good and quite straight. And as you said, Jeff, he had a lot of fun with that. But yes, yeah, nice definitely. nice contrast between the two characters, the good, the sort of the good boy, the jock, and this sort of bad boy, John Travolta character. Yeah. Lucy? I'm with you. It's funny because you sent me your notes and you said you were quite ambiguous. You said one of them didn't work, and I'm happy to agree with you that John Travolta did not work for me at all. I just felt that he was kind of pointless and like obviously Travolta has gone on to be such a big star and it's kind of one of these roles he's in the film but like what does he do you know he just sort of like you see he just hits Chris for the sake of it and it's like okay it's odd Tommy Ross is more fleshed out because at least he he seems to care about Carrie and you know his death is quite shocking and you know he's got this sort of development whereas uh, John Travolta does not so I'm definitely with you on that one Watching it again, did you not get annoyed with uh, John Travolta? I really did. Yes, I was, going, I was yeah, watching yeah. this going, you're better than this, John, for God's sake, <laughs> up your game. But he was already a big star by the time this came out because Welcome Back Carter was big on American TV. Yeah, which, which is even more shocking, right, because I, th- I felt like he could have done so much better. And in the novel, he's a bit better, I think. He's a bit more of an abusive, you know, swear word for Graham's sake I don't want to give him a wedding you know <laughs> he's, he's not the nicest of people so I feel that it could have been portrayed more in, in the film but he just sort of sits there and occasionally hits on Chris and then Chris calls him a stupid shit and then that's about it and it's like oh okay it's a shame because he could have done a lot more I think so we mentioned De Palma earlier and we mentioned it all throughout but I want to talk about a couple of things he did technically on this film which I think are amazing the colour palette of red that runs throughout from the screen credits to the dress to the colour, that the obviously to the pig's blood and to the colour, everything goes when the emergency lightning comes on in the school and a clear influence of Hitchcock. I mean, it's called the Bates High School, which is a reference to uh, Psycho. Oh, I didn't get that. Oh. Uh, and a lot of the camera angles uh, are, are things that Hitchcock would have done, like the way Sue Snell looks up following the rope to, to the pig's blood up on the top. Two of De Palma's previous films to this, Obsession and Sisters, were both ripped from Hitchcock works. So he uses a lot of that influence, and that, there's a lot of tension. Hitchcock says, you can have a jump shot, but isn't it much better to build up the suspense? And look at that scene with the pig's blood. I mean, how suspenseful is that? Mm. His use, his use of camera angles are, are incredibly telling. And I think, you know, when you have the shot of the pig's blood and then all the close-ups of Carrie, it's a very, very suspenseful uh, sequence, I think. And 
you know what's going to happen, but the suspense is still there. Do you know what I mean? Like it's quite a, yeah. quite a bizarre sequence. And I do think that there are very clear influences from Hitchcock where particularly, like I say, the close-ups of Carrie and that kind of thing. It's a, I think it's a beautiful homage to the, to the end, the master of suspense himself, really, and I just think it was it worked. Neil? De Palma kind of spent a career trying to copy Hitchcock's style or not. He'd develop his own Hitchcockian style, didn't he? Um, so, uh, it, And this was his first real commercial hit, It was I his think. biggest commercial Yes, it was. Phantom of the Paradise became a big cult hit. Yeah, uh, and Obsession and Sisters found their audiences. Obsession, by the way, if you've never seen it, it's absolutely fantastic. I'd highly recommend everybody to watch. He that. did Scarface, didn't he, Leah? Yeah, he did Scarface, Scarface mm. and that yeah, yeah. started changing into the to the crime dramas. The thing with the Palmer, he's great as long as he doesn't touch comedy, because <laughs> then you get things like Wise Guys and Bonfire of the Vanities. Yeah, Brian, you don't have a sense of humour. Leave it alone and walk away now. Okay. And The Untouchables is another one of my all-time favourites. Great score, Morricone. Yeah. Anyway, Neil, you were saying... And he he does build up the uh, the tension. And it's a short book, and he has to spread it out for a sort of um, one-and-a-half-hour thing. I think he does extremely well. It's, um, It's one of those things he picks up a, a novel that wasn't widely known and just jumpstart Stephen King's career. And I think you make a good point there because when this film opened in November 76, nobody expected it to be suddenly thrown forward for Oscar nominations. Mm. And so the two lead actresses both end up in nominations. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Graham. Yeah, I, I, I like the Palmer's work anyway. And and you can see a lot of Hitchcock, the, the bit where Amy Irvine realises that there's a bucket above their head and is, the camera tracks her as she moves, to, you know, sort of to the right of the stage, looking up to think, oh, my God, that's connected to a rope. And then, then all of that suspense gets revealed through her eyes is just excellent and it's brilliant. And I've said to you before, one of my favourite shots and one of my favourite bits in the whole film is when Carrie walks down the steps off the stage and everything is on fire around her and it's Mm -hmm. in bright red. And then you go into that classic sort of 1970s split screen stuff, but it just is really well done and his direction is just razor sharp. And I think one of the things around the scenes, you've got the build-up, you've got the building up the tension, you've got Donaggio's score reaching a crescendo. Mm. She pulls the rope and the blood comes down. The music stops, everything is silent, and the only thing you hear, and it's emphasised on the soundtrack, is the bucket hitting the rafter yeah. above. Yeah, That keeps going until it drops and hits Tommy Ross on the head. Mm-hmm. I think it's just marvellous. Mm-hmm. I agree. Over his career, the Palmer's had such a bad rap on a lot of things. Uh, and unfortunately, as for that, some of the genius that he's got is sometimes overlooked. Film had a very small budget. The destruction of the town wasn't filmed. Although there is an argument to say that Carrie White's whole world was school and home. So that was the town to her. But did you miss the expansive ending of the book? Honestly, no. Part of me like the intimacy of being so close to the action because, like in the book, she leaves the school and leaves everyone to die, whereas in in the film, she's very much present when everyone's like sort of being crushed to death and everything. You know, she's she's watching it 
Whereas in the book, she leaves quite quickly and just lets the entire school explode. It's a lot more gruesome in, in, in the film. And I think that it's quite interesting being that close to the action. So like you said, Carrie's life was school and home. So the fact that she's basically massacred everybody in her school is probably revenge enough for her, honestly. I didn't really miss it at all, no. Well, we've got to talk about it, that famous ending. It's the night of the senior prom. The Bates High School gym is alive with excitement. Everybody is there, even Carrie White, the girl no one likes. Oh, sorry about this incident, Cassie. It's Carrie! And everyone makes fun of her. The girl who lives in that creepy house with her crazy mother. Help the silly woman see the sin of her days and ways. Show her that if she had remained sinless, the curse of blood would never have come on her. The girl with the strange power. If I concentrate hard enough, I can move things. But tonight, no one will laugh at Carrie. If you don't have a date to the prom next Friday, would you like to go with me? She's with the best-looking boy in the senior class. He's trying to trick me again. She'll be voted queen of the prom. You know, I can make sure that you don't hurt Carrie White anymore. For Carrie, it will be a dream come true. For everyone else, it will be a nightmare. <laughs> Carrie. The whole point of that ending, as the Palmer saw it, was to reinforce how this is going to stay with Sue Snell for the rest of her life. So she has this unconscious guilt, which came out in the dream sequence. And it is a dream sequence, of course, because if you watch it, one of the big glitches of it is the cars in the background are moving backwards because they filmed it all in reverse. So you've got this big sequence and then the, the hand comes up. And it was totally unexpected. I, when I was first watching it in the cinema, this guy thought the film was over, was getting up, putting his coat on, and the hand shot out of the grave, and he fell backwards over the chair. What the <laughs> but it changed horror forever. Everybody talks about it. So then you've got not so much Halloween, because Carpenter didn't copy it, but certainly Friday the 13th copied it, and all sorts of films through Evermore. It's become a staple of horror movie now, the end shock effect. Who better to talk to on this first than Neil? <laughs> <laughs> it's cracking, isn't it? It's a, it's superb. It's that shock. It's the blood. It's the, yeah, it's, it's amazing. Yeah, very good ending. Fantastic. Graham? Oh, I had the same effect when I went to see it. Uh, people were getting up and uh, this guy just turned round as he was uh, putting his coat on and saw the hand shoot out of the ground and ran right out at <laughs> the door of the air. Oh, I was shouting. <laughs> so it was just incredible. Lucy? It's brilliant. It's, it's one of the most famous examples of a jump scare that's not tokenistic. One of the things that, I mean, a lot of us agree on is that horror, you know, it's becoming too much of like remakes and, oh, jump scares for the sake of it. But this was so clever because there was no real jumpy moments at all throughout Carrie until that big moment. And I remember the first time I watched it, I genuinely did jump, you know, and it's, 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 such a, it's such a release after all of that. And I love showing it to my friends and like, you know, waiting for their reaction as well. So it's, it's iconic. It really is. And it has stood the test of time. It's still brilliant. 
Do you miss the ending of the book when it goes to like a next generation carry? I I like that. Yes, I think it's interesting because, you know, there's that thing about, oh, there's never going to be another Carrie White and there's never going to be anything. And then you have, you know, the big reveal of, oh, there's another one. But that probably wouldn't have translated as well on screen. I think on screen you needed some sort of final moment to shock your audience. And it just worked in a film environment, whereas the book was able to sort of go a little bit more subtler but still have the effect, if that makes sense. It's because it's so well set up. That's what what impressed me when I watched it again. And I thought, oh, yeah, you've got that slow motion. You've got the almost dreamlike quality to it. You know, when I was watching it in the cinema, I was thinking, oh, there's that gorgeous actress again. And, you know, she's drifting through this environment. She's got the flowers to give to her friend Carrie. Then there's the little bit of humour with you know, Carrie Whiteburns in hell written on the marker and you sort of uh, giggle yeah, to... Yeah, for sale sign, which should have been the, the warning that you're not in normal life at that point. Exactly. And, and it took me three, four times to work that out as well. Watching. Yeah, and you have the blackened ground around and you think, oh, that, that's where it all burned down. So you're completely invested in this and then suddenly whoosh and you, ah, you, know, you hit the <laughs> ceiling. You know, it's so such a great setup. Mm-hmm. It was Sissy Spacek as well. She didn't want anybody else to do that. Oh, that wow. Sissy, yeah. you're right. Yeah. Really? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's so cool. <laughs> yeah. yeah, she refused to let anybody else do any of the, the shots with their hands or anything like that. She did them all, all the inserts. You know I ain't going to let this pass without talking about the music. And there's an interesting story around the music because Bernard Herman was originally – contracted now herman had worked with brian de palma on both sisters and obsession which again because herman was hitchcock's composer of choice so they fell out and he was contracted to carry but unfortunately he died christmas eve 1975 after the day that he finished the music for taxi driver de palma went and got pino tenaggio which is quite an interesting relationship because I don't believe De Palma speaks Italian and Donaggio doesn't speak English. So that must have been a, a fun passing. But I think the music is is superb. It's lyrical. It's frightening. It goes from, you know, the big suspense build-up, again, with the bucket of blood, it's classical. And then the moment the blood drops and the sound kicks back in, it's electronic. So he uses different styles, and I think it all works. Again, it's a tremendous soundtrack. You're probably going to hate me for this, but like I, I never really noticed the soundtrack. To be honest, like I, I was. Well, that's a good time. I was so, <laughs> I was so invested in the actual characters and yeah. and the sort of the of the, the setup and the themes that I never really focused on the soundtrack a lot. So I haven't really got a lot to say. I'm afraid it shows the film's working if you don't yeah. notice the music. No, I, I really didn't. And perhaps I, after listening to this, I probably will should go ahead and, and pay more attention to that. I think. After listening to you for so many years, Jeff, I have to actually pay attention to the soundtrack. I did like the soundtrack. I thought it really enhanced certain key moments. The the key moment where Carrie's hiding in the corner when she just realizes she's killed her mother and that the house is starting to come down. All of those sort of things, just it just builds up the tension. I did like the bit where it's all sort of goes electronica. It's an interesting and different soundtrack to go with an interesting and different film for the time. Just summing up on Carrie then. So when the film came out, the director, De Palma, was escalated into the big leagues. He went on to make a whole run of these films before moving into more epic style of filmmaking, shall we say. Sissy Spacek gets nominated for an Oscar. 
Again, her level and choice of role increases, and she eventually wins an Oscar a few years later for Coal Miner's Daughter. John Travolta made two now long-forgotten films called Saturday Night Fever in Greece straight after this. As we said, the ending of this film pretty much changed horror cinema and the way it approaches its endings. Mm -hmm. Is there anything else we should remember about this film? Lucy? Well, I just feel like it's still so relevant today in the sense that people are still treated in this way and, you know, people are still so cruel to each other. And I just feel that Carrie deserved so much better. It's a good entry into the horror genre if you're not really into horror, because aside from the big moment we've referenced, it's not exactly very jumpy. You know, it's more psychological. And I just think that it's it's just such an important film and I would urge anybody to go and watch it, honestly. Well, Neil's watched it, so there's a sign that uh, people... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I have. Yeah, it's uh, it's true. It's a long time ago, but it, uh, it's burned into my memory. I think it stands up because, you know, it has three important elements, story, story, story. You know, it's such a good story. And the characters are so good. And it's well put together and it rattles along. I'm the most ignorant person on horror movies. But if all horror movies were like this, we had really good stories and interesting characters that played off against one another, I think horror would be seen as less of a sort of a sub-genre and, and dismissed. It is a really, really good horror movie. And it made me jump and it, made, it you know, scared the living daylights out of me, some of the scenes, and especially when poor old uh, Betty Buckley as the teacher, Miss Collins, gets chopped in half. I mean, that was quite shocking. You guys probably, it's just run of the mill for you horror fans, but that was quite shocking for me because you, you quite like her and you think, oh, she's going to live. No, oh, no, she didn't. Right. It, it is an absolute classic. And I think things changed after Carrie a lot. And horror movies got really interesting, you know. And then you move forward and you get into things like Alien and other films and The Thing and John Carpenter's Halloween and those sorts of things. All of that, all of that intelligent stuff just seems to be lacking these days. I don't know what it is. They've, as Lucy says, it's just endless jumps, uh, scares, and then, you know, you have Friday the 13th, part 97. <laughs> whatever. They have like. stopped making those quite a few years ago, Graham. Well, okay. You see, I did say I'm ignorant on the subject, but... He's got a point, though. It's like endless remakes. Like, oh, come on. <laughs> Stop this. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, remakes and sequels. But we've covered sequels. We've spoken about that. Mm-hmm and franchise in a show yet to come out. Really interesting. I I would say I don't see this as a horror film to completely no. counter everything that Graham has just said. I see this as a tragedy more than, yes, it has some supernatural element in it, but I, for once, don't see this as many other King films that are out-and-out horror. For me, this isn't. It's one of my favourite Stephen King and certainly one of my favourite Brian De Palma films. I thank you all for taking part in this discussion. I think it's really informative. I think we've actually spent longer talking talking about this film than the film takes to run. But I, I, I think it's worth it. Yes. And uh, we can, we've almost made our own commentary track, really. So uh, I think that that was good. And it's a tremendous film, definitely tremendous. And you know, we will be covering some of the other versions of Carrie as we go through this. But in the meantime, we'll be returning in the near future with a new panel when we're discussing Toby Hooper's take on Salem's Lot, and that was designed for American TV in the late 1970s. 
where would you get a cast like David Soul and James Mason today? Great. So in the meantime, stay well and read King. Bye for now. <laughs>